will be your mouth. Spread your legs. Clear. What's up, guys, man? You already know it's your boy, Pistol Pete, man. Welcome to Dog in the Yard. You know, I got my comrade with me once again. You already know how we rock this. That's right, boxing dice to the right all day, every day. I mean, so my next guest is Johnny Handcappy. I mean, the brother did 25 years for a crime he didn't do. You know, it was an accident, incident that happened in the train from a, a, a family that came from Utah. You know, the interview was very, very touching. I mean, it's always touching when you didn't do the crime and, and you do so much time, you know, and, you know, and, and, and it's touching to everybody. You know, he, he really opened up and, and we give, we, you know, we give that feeling like we talking from cell to cell. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But for that don't know, you know, them, them late night talks where, where you sit down, you start talking to your neighbor and you start, you know, like, let him know how you feel, you know, about, about life, about everything. This brother opened up like that, man, and... You know, it was it was a compelling and touchy story, man. You know, that could happen to any one of us, man, for being, you know, in the wrong place with the wrong crowd. Listen, man, with that being said, man, let's just get right to it. You know what I'm saying? I hope that y'all enjoy it. You know what I mean? The interview was very touching. Um, and um, I want to um, just, you know, throw that out there. Dog in the yard, you already know. Your boy Pistol, man, boxing dice. This how we giving it up. Hey, man, I want to just take the time out to thank... My guys up there, Jake and Ben, for doing an amazing job with this pen. This is that Dom CBD pen. These guys take their time doing this pen. It tastes great. They do them three different flavors, berry, mint, and mango. My favorite is berry, just to let you know, guys. You know, I know a lot of people out there dealing with pain, you know, dealing with anxiety, the way I deal with anxiety. And I'm telling you guys, it works for me. If you want to place your order today, you're more than welcome. Just hit up domecbd.co. Punch in the coat, dog in the yard, and you get your 15% off early. So for those people that's out there that's going through it right now and is stressed out in the house that don't smoke marijuana, trust me, my brothers, this CBD pen does it all, man. Place your order today, man. It's your boy Pistol Pete, dog in the yard. You already know. Today's guest is Johnny Handcappy. This brother did 25 years, and he was accused of a crime that he didn't commit. He was accused of killing a tourist that came from Utah. I mean, the story was amazing. Like I said, it was touching to me, you know, because like I said, I went to jail for something I didn't do as well. So with that, you know, I want to just thank Johnny Handcappy for coming through. And I hope that all the young brothers out there, you know, please get the message, man. It's real. Let's get right into it, man. You already know, dog in the yard, your boy Pistol. So today's guest, man, we got Johnny and Gabriel in the building. What's up, man? Welcome to the Dog in the Yard, my brother, man. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, man. Thank you for coming by, man. I appreciate you, you know, being here, man. Um, so uh, right before anything, man, I want to um, ask you, like, you know, a little bit about your background and stuff like that, where you come from, you know, where you was raised, you know, and then from there we could just take off as far as, like, what led to your incarceration and stuff like that, a little bit of that and so far. Well, I'm Colombian, so I was born in Colombia, and... Um, my parents brought me here when I was like two years old. I went, lived in Florida and from Florida came and moved here to New York. And I wasn't, I wasn't one of those kids that, you know, got into the game or nothing like that. You know, my parents was actually trying to do the right thing, try to raise me right, treat, keep me away from all trouble and problems. But, you know, living in New York back in the 80s, the 80s was the 80s in New York, so... You're going to have friends from all over the place. and It was tough. Yeah. And um, I used to live in Queens. Mm-hmm. And um, growing up, I was just trying to get into the groove like everybody else was uh, with music. I had a passion for acting. I was a dancer. I was a DJ. Oh, and that's, that's what cool. people knew me by. And I, and I met a lot of people in the industry back then. Wow. And all of a sudden, when I was 18 years old, this happened to me. Okay, so at 18 years old, that's when all the problems really began. That's when all the, um, one night, 
going out. I got invited to go out to Roseland. And um, basically the, the word out in town was from the people that I knew. It says, listen, we're inviting a lot of people. And it, and it went down like, say, you invited your friends. I invited my friends. And your friends invited their friends. Next thing you know, there was like 40, 50 people that didn't really know each other. Yeah. But everybody just was there on on the strength that, hey, you know, everybody's cool, so we're all going to go out. We're going to roll together. Yeah. Unfortunately, some of the people that went out that night came without funds. They didn't have enough money to get into Roseland. Mm. So they decided, you know, they wanted to rob somebody. They wanted to commit a crime. And um, I, this was unbeknownst to me. I had no idea what was going to take place. And in the, in, the, in the course of going out, we went out to the... Manhattan, we got to Manhattan. We took the train from Queens into Manhattan. And in the process going into Manhattan, they met up at different train stops with a lot of the people that was going. And everybody went out into the street. One of my friends, I gave him my money to hold because I just had bought these designer jeans in the village that had like all these pockets, but they weren't pockets. They were just seams that looked like pockets. So I had my money in my in my socks, okay. but I knew I was gonna dance that night. Right. I was gonna get busy, cause you know, growing up from break dancing and then going into <laughs> mixing that up with house music and the freestyle and everything, I said, I'm gonna get busy. Yeah, and and I was a good dancer. Yeah, oh, okay. I was a good dancer, I used okay. to get down. Okay. So I said, you know what? If I keep my money in my sock, it's gonna come out. So one of my friends, he had a fanny pack. And I said, can you hold this for me? He said, sure. But when we got to Manhattan, I didn't see him out on the sidewalk. So I asked around, I said, do you know where Anthony is at? He said, yeah, I think he's still downstairs in the train station. I didn't see him come out. And I went downstairs looking for him and I asked some people, but I never went down. I stood like in the token booth area. Yeah. And I met up with somebody else. We were talking, we saw a bunch of girls, we were flirting with them. Then I went back outside and they said he was by the club. We went to the club. And I found him, got my money, went inside, <laughs> called it the night, went back home. Next thing you know, the cops is at my house, arresting me, taking me to the precinct. The case was all over the news. It was one of the most publicized cases in the history of New York. One year after the Central Park Five case, which has happened in 1990 for the Utah tourist case. Okay. Well, a family from Utah came to New York to attend the tennis tournament, the U.S. Open tennis tournament. Okay. And that night that my friends and everybody else decided to go out to Roseland, they were going out to eat and dine at a restaurant. And they took the subway. And at that subway platform where we got out, this is where some of the guys that I didn't know decided to make the robbery happen. Okay. And they robbed them. Okay. But unfortunately, one of them got stabbed, and the person that got stabbed was the son of the family, and he got stabbed in the chest. So uh, he died, and because they were Mormons from Utah, they were white, um, they made this a big deal. From the mayor on down, they just wanted everybody, and I was the last person to get arrested, and the only reason why they arrested me is because one of the persons that committed the crime that I knew was my friend. So they asked him, I need to know all the names of the people that went out with you to Roseland. They never asked him, I need to know the names of the people that committed the crime with you. you. They just wanted to know who went out with him. So when he said, I don't know everybody's name, but I know a few, and he mentioned my name, that's how they got where I lived at, and they came to get me. Wow, man. And when I got to the precinct, um, they, the, the detective, he, um, he just went crazy on me. He, um, he started beating me up. And so keep in mind that as an 18 year old, I didn't have a criminal record, never had any dealings with the law, young, naive, First time in a police station, right? Yeah. And somebody puts their hands on you and threatens you, telling you they're going to kill you unless you memorize this statement, right? 
That's exactly what I did. But one thing about my case that a lot of people don't know, right? right? And very few people know, but the majority of people that know about my case, because it's been all over the news, yeah. a lot of people don't know that my case is very well linked to the Central Park 5 case. Okay. And I'm going to tell you why. The leading detective from the Central Park case was the same leading detective in my case. And he was the one wow. that if you see the movie that's out right now with the Central Park Five called When They See Us, right? They show in the movie how he orchestrated with all the other detectives on how to interrogate these people and coerce them to making false confessions. He was the one that manipulated and having the detective in my case when I was the last one to get arrested right. to make sure that he beat me up and make me make a false confession because it was the only piece of evidence that they've ever used in order to convict me. Wow. So so basically, they, he, so that's, that was the whole plot. He had everybody set up so like that when you get there, they beat you up and, and have you... Uh, uh, so then what happened next? I mean... Well, the thing is that... The people that committed the crime in my case, they got arrested, and they all confessed to the crime. Two people that confessed the crime, uh, to the crime, they told the detectives and the ADA that I wasn't even there. This is in their yeah, videotape statement. Wow. Like in one of, the, one, of the, one of my co-defendants, they asked them eight times. The ADA says, well, was Johnny there? Uh, well, it was... Um, it was actually eight of you guys, right? And he kept, up, he kept on saying, no, it was six of us. He kept on correcting the ADA. He said, no, Johnny was not there. Like, he repeated over and over telling them that I was not there. But yet they still arrested me. And they still put me on trial with them. And everybody that knows anything about That's the crazy. law in New York, when you go to trial as a group, it doesn't make a difference if you're the only innocent person in that group, when the jury is going to uh, uh, deliberate, they're going to look at the whole group as guilty. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened with me. Wow. And you couldn't, you couldn't separate the, uh, their case? I tried, but they wouldn't let me. My judge was a very, very famous judge in New York. Puerto Rican judge known in New York, Edwin Torres, for writing the book Q&A and writing the book Carlitos Way, which they both made into movies. So they handpicked him to be my judge in my case. And he was not trying to be lenient at all or trying to be fair. It was too many politics involved. You keep in mind, 1990 came, New York had the highest crime rate in history of New York. We had the highest percentage of homicides, mm -hmm. the highest percentage of drug sales, the highest percentage of robbery. One year before that, the Central Park Five case was committed. The city was going crazy because a white woman was raped. True. And now all of a sudden, you got a family from Utah that comes to New York and their son gets killed. They wasn't trying to, do, to be lenient or, or have this judge be fair. He threw the book at us, and he, and he said at sentencing, if the death penalty had existed in New York, he would have gave us the death penalty. Wow. That's fucking crazy. That's, just, that's the kind of shit they was really on. Exactly. They still on it, but back in the days, it was out of control. Big time. Yeah, they do that. Damn, man. So, so y'all all blew trial. We all were found guilty, and... We were sentenced to 25 years to life. All of y'all? Every single one of us. Even the person that killed the, the, the son of the family, he confessed. The actual one. Yeah, he, he, he said he stabbed the guy, right? And, and Because we all got charged with felony murder. A lot of people don't know about felony murder. And it's a very, very dangerous charge that exists throughout the whole entire United States. Whereas if a group of people go out to anything you can go out to a restaurant you go out to party whatever and if somebody has a weapon on them or somebody decides to get into a fight or to rob somebody and in the process they kill somebody anybody in that group that that knew that somebody had the weapon or that knew that they were going to do something to somebody and they didn't do anything to stop them and they, then everybody just proceeded went about their business yeah 
When you get arrested and they ask you, did you have knowledge of this person beating this person up or had knowledge of this person taking any belongings from them or you had knowledge of him having a weapon, guess what? You are equally as guilty as the person that killed that person and committed the crime. That's felony murder. So to put it in a nutshell, That's imagine somebody coming to pick you up in their car. They say, hey, yo, Pete, right. let's go out to the club. They kind of pick you up in a nice, beautiful car, right? Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, you get pulled over by the police, and the police decides to search the car. They find drugs. If the owner of the car does not man up, he does not take responsibility and say that those drugs were his, both of you are getting arrested for possession of yeah, drugs. Yeah, they're going to charge both of you. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. That's how felony murder works in the same New thing. York. It's the same thing. So then you, what happened from that point? Y'all all went back. Y'all got sentenced to 25 years. We got sentenced 25 years to life. And then y'all just went up, went what, the right? Y'all, where you was at? In I was in Rikers Island. How long you was in Rikers Island for? I was in Rikers Island close to two years. Two years. And keep in mind, when, when I was in Rikers Island, anybody that was in Rikers Island from the 80s going on to the early 90s, mm -hmm. Rikers Island not only was a hellhole, but Rikers Island was at its worst peak in violence. Every day they was cutting, stabbing people, and COs, correction officers, was jumping people. They was doing everybody dirty, mm -hmm. you know, to put it in those terms. For, 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 keep in mind, I don't, I, I'm not the average Latino that looks Latino, especially as a Colombian. Okay. So me going into Rikers Island, as skinny as I was back then, I was weighing 150 pounds, oh, looking as wide as possible, right? <laughs> I stood out, yeah. you know? And the first thing they told me when I first got in there, they said, yo, listen, if you want to survive in here, you have to fight. And I was scared to death. You know, everybody that goes in and says, yeah, I was a big gangster and all this. Don't get me wrong. They probably did develop into gangsters and anything. But I didn't go into jail as a gangster. Yeah. You know? A normal 18-year-old kid. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I did that. I fought, you know? And you had no other choice, right? I had no other choice. <laughs> I had no other choice. And Rikers Island, like I said, it was the worst. Yeah, it was the tough. worst nightmare that I had went through in order going to making the transition to then go up north into the prison system. Right. And when you go up north, you ask anybody, you know, at least Rikers Island is in the city, your family's coming to visit you. But then when they send you up north, you're really being separated from your family because now you hours away from them. And it's hard for them to go visit you, mm -hmm. especially going into a prison where the majority of people that work there you know, not to sound demeaning to any other culture or anything like that, right. but they say it themselves. They call themselves rednecks. When you get to the prison, it says, you in our hood now. You we you in the redneck town, okay? Yeah. You you want to act tough? You in our house. Yeah, exactly. You in our house. You want to act tough? You're going to see what a redneck so means. Let me, let me, before we get back to that, your experience on Rikers Island, right? So you used to, how many fights you got into it? Like, I mean, what was the situation? Like, what, what is it that you've seen that on Rikers Island or me that you will never forget? Do you well, have anything that you could... Well, I'll tell you this. Before you go, up, you go up north, I'm just... So, I, I was picked on by the COs constantly, okay? I had COs constantly putting me up against the wall, constantly trying to throw punches at me. They did throw punches at me, put me on the floor, kick me around. I had COs send other inmates at me like, I mean, just... just because the publicity of my case. Oh, okay. You know? Okay. Remember, they made the news, the media had already condemned us. The media had already Can't found guilty. us guilty way before we had even went to trial. So I had COs constantly sending other inmates to me, and these inmates, as 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 ignorant and as dumb-minded that they were. And, mm -hmm. and to some extent, I don't blame them because they didn't know any better. They didn't know what they were doing. But at the same time, I didn't like the fact how they were following orders from a CO. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Of course. Of like, course. if we're in jail together, regardless if I'm innocent or not, are, 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 are you wearing greens? Are you in jail? <laughs> are you with, 
you yeah, know, you with the I, system or something? I, like, what the I fuck? just I couldn't understand yeah, what yeah, I was yeah, going yeah, through yeah. at that time. They was doing sucker shit. So for me, my worst experience is how I had to defend myself mm -hmm. against the inmates that were being sent by the COs, and then in some cases the COs themselves. I'll tell you this, Pete. I got so many stories about my experience in prison because, again, like I told you, I wasn't that person that came in, had it made because they were big, they were tough, they yeah. were already built, yeah, yeah. or they were well-known right, yeah. throughout the streets. That wasn't me, yeah. you know? So I really, really had to fight. Yeah. And in one occasion, I remember CEOs in my housing unit, they were opening cell by cell. And they had a broomstick and they had their belly club. And they were just going inside the cells and they were beating all the inmates up. And I was looking at the crack through the crack of my door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was seeing what was taking place. And I literally got so nervous and I started crying. Huh. I was crying and I said, you know what? I'm not going to let this happen to me. And as soon as they cracked my cell open, I just ran out. And I just jumped on the seals and I started fighting them. And Pete, I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not no. trying to impress anybody on this show, right? Absolutely. I don't know how I did it, but I tell you this, when I charged these CEOs <laughs> and I was fighting them, yeah. right? I knocked both of them to the floor. And I wasn't, and listen. They wasn't expecting that shit. They wasn't expecting That's what I'm saying. Was They like, wasn't the expecting it. You rushed them out the so when I got them to the floor, huh? the one behind me, I just forgot about them. Next thing you know, I felt the Big whack over my back. Like he got where it was his, the broomstick and he knocked me down to the floor. Okay. And then I thought that was over. I thought it was over for me because I thought they were just going to go crazy. But the seal that I was standing in front of, he told the other seal, he said, nah, leave him alone. And then he told me to go back inside my cell and that was it. But this is some of the examples of the stories that you're talking about yeah, that I'll never forget. Absolutely. Never forget. That's right. So and then you so from that point on you went up north. After three years, what, how many years? Almost two years. Two years on Rikers Island. Then you went up north. I went up north. So and then what 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 happened? I mean, what how that went for you? It didn't go good because it seemed like my folder was marked. Uh, you know. So when I got up north, where what, what, what jail you went? Well, to? first you know they they sent me to Downstate, which was reception. Right. And from Downstate. They sent me to Kaksaki. Okay. And Kaksaki was like Elmira. They both considered them adolescent jails, what they considered gladiator school jails. And in Kaksaki, I'll never forget. What year was this? This was 1992. Okay. 1992, I went upstate. Okay. So I got arrested in 1990. I was, I, I was in Kaksaki. I was in the box by then. I was I, from fucking with Kasaki. I, I closed. So the you know, I locked Kasaki down. You it know, was a big riot in that shit. You know. Yeah, I know. I trust me. That that's what led me to go to the box for three years. And in Kasaki, I had a sergeant, a lieutenant, and two COs standing in front of my cell door, looking out my window in reception. And Waiting they for you? No, I was in the cell. Oh, okay. And they just got there and they just started looking at me. And I said, um, excuse me, can I help you? And they didn't say anything. They just kept on looking at me. You know, they were intimidating me. And I ain't going to lie, it worked. Because after they left, I said, these motherfuckers are going to kill me, man. You yeah, know? you was like convinced. There was these motherfuckers plotting on me or something. You know, and, 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 and I knew it was because of my case. And, 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 you know, throughout my whole entire time there and everywhere I went, I suffered a lot because I was saying, you know, I'm in here, first of all, Innocent. for something I didn't do, and yet I'm being associated and labeled for this crime where all the COs, okay, are attacking me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you're, still, you're still paying for the fucking crime, and you basically, you didn't, and you didn't even do it. Exactly. It was tough. I'm, I know it must have been really hard just getting picked on like that and... You know, being labeled like that anywhere you go, they, they, you know, they, it's on the it's, it's on the files. It's not like you dumb, like you stupid, like you don't know. So you, so you, did, so you went to Kasaki, and then what? Like how long you was there, and, and what? In Kasaki, um, I was there from April of 1992, 
and I, they, they, they kept me key blocked. They kept me in the box, always giving me tickets because, you know, you, you make that transition from Rikers Island to upstate. So, you know, the, the um, disobeying the direct order rules on the ticket <laughs> and keep your hands in your pocket, yeah, yeah. Your right? Um, you know, you, you go through that phase of how mm -hmm. they write you all this all these misbehavior reports and you spent 30 days key block here, 30 days key block there, or 45 days in the box here, whatever. I went through all those phases in Kasaki, but each and every one of those phases, you know, again, was another experience because I had SEALs constantly trying to set me up. I remember one time coming out of key block, I went to the yard, said, What's up to a friend of mine? Next thing you know, the CEO is telling me and him to put our hands in our pocket. And they're escorting us inside. And the CEO calls the sergeant saying, hey, listen, I found this knife on the floor. He, it, it dropped out of his pocket. And the sergeant wow, asked me, crazy. yeah, the sergeant asked me, he said, this is yours. And I'm on the wall with my hands and my feet spread out because, you know, they spread you yeah. out. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, I never seen that in my life. And I heard the CEO says, this guy here. He's from the Utah tourist case. You know, he was just trying to slander me, trying to talk bad about me. So I said, this guy set me up. But what I didn't know was that that sergeant had just gotten to the facility. He had just became a sergeant. He was brand new. Right. So then he went and spoke to the other guy that was on the wall. And the other guy was just cursing him out like, you crackers this, you crackers that. And then the sergeant came back and he said, what do you want to do? You want to go back to the yard or you want to go back to your cell? And I said to myself, well, if I go to my cell, that means the same CEO that set me up is yeah. going to want to probably do something to me again. I said, no, you know what? Let me go to the yard. So if I come back, I'm going to come back with everybody. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. By the time I went back to my cell, the CEO came and says, you saw how easy it was for me to set you up? So my point is throughout my whole experience wow. in Kagsaki, I went through experiences like that where the seals were constant. So you was just bitten like that. Yeah, that shit must have been fucking hard as hell. Just bitten like that, man. Them picking on you and starting all kind of shit, and it's dangerous because you're like, damn, I'm never gonna get up out of here. Exactly. Yeah. So, they, so you moved. You got. You, you get so transfer I, from I, there. I got. I asked for a transfer. Um, I was. I was like praying until I became 21, because in Kaksati. They wouldn't let you transfer unless you got into a disciplinary major disciplinary problem or you became 21. And when I became 21, I asked for a transfer. So they sent me to Sing Sing. Oh, okay. So then you was you was you was happy you got there. I mean, it's better than Kasaki or I was I'll tell you this, Sing Sing was wild. Sing Sing was <laughs> crazy, right? But Sing Sing, you didn't see uh the racism that you saw on Kaksaki, because the majority of the COs there mm -hmm. were all from the five boroughs. They were all Latinos. They were all African-American. There were people that a lot of people that were in there knew from the streets. Okay. So they weren't treating everybody Bad. with that type of oppression. Okay. So I said, okay, it's better, but you still had to watch your back, you know? Hell yeah. You always got to watch your back in jail. <laughs> yep. So 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 you got to so you when you went to Sing Sing, how long you was there? Like I stood there exactly for about eight months because they kicked me out. They were building a wall and they said that uh, it was a security and anybody that had more than fifteen years left to do in their sentence couldn't stay. So they kicked me out and they sent me to Green Haven. Wow. How was that? Greenhaven wasn't that bad, right? No, nah, Greenhaven was good. Greenhaven was nice, but it was known at that time. It was already known that if you uh, if you gave the CEOs a hard time, you weren't going to make it out there alive because they were going to jump you, and that's what they were known for. But other than that, they had good programs, the events, the festivals, the recreation. It was good. Okay, so then you did the rest of your bit there? No. So I, went, I, I, I didn't <laughs> go around the world. I didn't go around the state like a lot of people did, but I went from... Cag a downstate Kagsaki, Sing Sing, Greenhaven, Southport, um Southport uh, Population? South no, Southport Box. Oh, we gonna talk about that one. <laughs> so go ahead. So you was go ahead. So then I went to uh Clinton uh box. I came out of Clinton box. I was in Clinton population 
And then from Clint, I went back to Sing Sing, and then from Sing Sing to Fishkill. Okay. They dropped my classification to a medium. Okay. Then I went to Fishkill. So after you was in uh, Green Haven. So in Green Haven, um, I got jumped by the COs, okay. right? And they charged me with all these crazy charges. Then they sent me to the box in Green Haven, and from Green Haven, they sent me to Southport. Um, I was in Southport for a couple of weeks. I thought I was going to do um, more time over there. How much, how much box time do you have? I had 90 days. Okay. And right? they sent you to Southport? They sent me to Southport. They sent me to Southport, and I stood there for three weeks, and then they sent me to Clinton. To the box? Yeah. Okay. Initially, my 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 sentence was six months, mm -hmm. but they had um, and uh, you know how you get your your um, in the hearing, when you go for your um, see, it's been four years I've been home and now I'm, you know you forget all of, all about that. Yeah. But when you get your determination, they they had like deferred uh, ninety days of that. So the only thing that I had to do was ninety days. Okay. You know, yeah. out of the six months. Yeah. They, I got you. They had put 90 days over my head. Oh, okay. Nine, yeah, 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 yeah. You understand? Yeah, yeah. But it was a six-month sentence. Yeah. Exactly. So, I but forgot e a little bit, too, exactly. but I remember that. But either way, they, they, they still sent me to Southport. Yeah, it's just, okay. Exactly. But I didn't last there long, so then from there I went to Clinton. Yeah. How you felt about when you got to Southport? You was like... It was crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy. People throwing feces. Yeah. Uh, 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 counselors, on uh, it was All crazy. Kind of shit going yeah. on. Plastic is, I mean, glass with the with the, the cell with the glass on to, on on front of it. The plastic glass. It was nasty. It was nasty. Yeah, yeah and the seals were. I, I was there. I'm been there for three years in Southport, so I know that. That's. I was in the whole. I was like that under the, under the jail, like the you know like the, not the regular. I was under the the whole. You know the whole jail was the box. Yeah. For those people that don't know. Yeah. They just you know what I mean it, it, it was South Paul was like a whole. You remember the whole riot? Did you hear about it? Yeah. It was a riot. Yeah. And all that. I was in that riot. I was in a cell. And they fucked me up. You was in you was in Southport. Hold on a second. So were you in Southport when it was population before they turned it no, into the box? I was I was I had got there locked. I was I got when I got to uh Southport. It was population, but it was going through the transition of changing it all the way to the box. Mm. So they took me and I was there, um, in the uh, like regular you know regular uh, uh, tiers and all that regular with everybody locked up population and shit. But I was key locked, you know, because I had box time. And then when they when they changed the whole shit, they took me to the, to the real, you know, downstairs to the box. Yeah. And then when they changed the whole vibe, I was still in the box because I was down there for years. So they changed the whole shit. And I made I finally made it. I mean, after a while, after like probably like two years and a half, I finally made it upstairs behind the... Uh, yeah, because you had to go through the... I was the one of those guys that was throwing shit at the police too. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, me with that being said, you know, so that I I, I went upstairs to be hot as fuck in that motherfucker, man. You know, be I be just with underwears on behind that glass, you yeah, know? Yeah, no, no. It was fucking crazy. So, but I finally made it after like two years and a half up there. But yeah, because you got to go through the level system. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, but that's what that's when the shit start changing. I had like a little. I had months. It was like, all right. Let's bring his ass upstairs and shit like that. I was like. All right, cool. Felt like you was going home and shit. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny because you only going from one cell to to another cell. Where you could just see. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. All right, but um, so that's for like people that don't know about Southport because a lot of people don't know about Southport and stuff like that. You know, Southport was a whole box. Yes, yeah, Southport. So for people that know what the term box mean is, mm -hmm. is what they see, you see on TV, the box, the whole yeah. segregation, special housing unit, yeah, H.H.U. SHU, people that cannot come out of their cells for 23 hours. You only come out for an hour a day. Mm -hmm. That's what Southport was. Yep. It still is to this it's day. Still is to this day. Yeah, so uh, so at least you well, you at least you didn't, you didn't get to stay in that dirty ass place and shit for yeah. long. You got you, you had so you went to Clinton. Yeah, I went to, to the Clinton. Box, and then you went to the box there. Well, I didn't go to the. I didn't really go to the box. I I still had the box time, but they put me in key block status over there. So I was in um, I uh um, what was it? Lower F. Okay. I went to lower F. Yeah, cause 
coming out of Southport, I thought I was going to go to box, but I still consider myself box. But actually, they put me in Lower F. If I if I if that was if I don't forget, that was the name of the housing unit. Okay. And then from Lower F, as soon as I got there, I was there for like maybe two weeks or so, two and a half weeks. And then I seen a lieutenant. He called me to his office and says, "I'm giving you a time cut." And then that's when they released me. Okay. Yeah, you went to population. Yeah, I went to the... population. Okay, so. You, from there, you finally, how you know, like, how long you stood there? How was in, your experience there? In Clinton, I was there for almost a year. I was, uh, I was working in the tailor shop, right? Um, I met my boy Dice over there. Okay. Um, we and him, we shout was, out Big Dice. Big Dice. Boxing Dice there. in the building. <laughs> we was in the same tailor shop, Taylor Five. Um, it was good. That, uh, I mean, that was my first experience being in the facility. Uh, where they had TVs in the cells. Okay. You know, um, but not to give the 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 impression that hey, you know, somebody that's incarcerated, they they have the lifestyle, they live in a dream, they got TVs in the cells. No, a lot of people don't understand that. First of all, we didn't have no color TVs. They have color TVs now, but back then they were black and white, and it was a trade off. You have TVs in your cells because. You wasn't out all the time. There was no recreation. Everybody was at programs. So the, the way the Clinton was running is that one side of the prison was in the yard and the other side of the prison was locked down inside their cell. Okay. So, you know, Clinton for a long, long time was known as a very, very violent facility. Okay. So I believe if I have the story correct, that was one of the reasons why they instituted televisions, TVs in the cells, they actually approved and gave them that privilege. So they could be in the cell a little more. You know, so they wouldn't, you know, say they, they didn't want them to complain. They didn't want them getting angry. They wanted to tame everybody down. So, okay, look, you can have a TV while everybody else is out in the yard because while they were mixing both sides of the facility, there was a lot of violence taking place. So they had to separate everybody. Says, okay, we're going to lock this down. We're going to give them TVs. So it'd be like, it'd be like, Every other day, they or, or, or they go to te- they they go outside for rec and them. We stay, yeah, we stay in that say that in cell and them. I was, I was yeah like yeah that. yeah it was like that. yeah it was we like go that. to pro- everybody other. go to program. Some days we be locked in. Today we locked in. Today we in cell. So TV that night. Nothing else. The next day we got rec. And then the other side has to be in the cell. Yeah, and it's not like, okay, we had HBO, we had Cinemax, none I of that. that shit. You though. know what I mean? So, again, I just want to point out that when people say, oh, yeah, I was in Clinton and we had TVs in the cells, I don't want people that's listening to this saying, you know, these inmates, okay, they they, they, were, they, they were living good. They were chilling. They got <laughs> TVs in there. Yeah, no, yeah. that's not the case. It's just certain ways how you. the Department of Corrections comes up and say, you know, how they have to run the prison population because let's let's be honest with each other. We are no longer the 1920s, 1930s. Uh-huh. So people make phone calls. People have visits. People have um, family reunion programs where they get to um, um, spend time with their wives, procreate children. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you have facilities that have TVs. And you got to understand this is a prison system. So they have to try to tame people's behavior because if not there's going to be a lot of stabbing. There's going to be a lot of cuttings. Right. So, so you know, those just decisions, administrative decisions that they had to make. Did it work to some extent? Yes. Did it work to another extent? No. But, again, let's not let people think, oh, yeah, they're, they're living the lifestyle out there. It wasn't like that, you know. Right, there was right. a lot taken away from us. And at the end of the day, when I was there, personally, when I was there, I had a TV, like when I got there, everybody saying, you, you got to get a TV, you got to get a TV. It did allow some time to go by where you didn't have to um, argue with other people, like when you go to the gym or you go to the yard, because you got 500 people watching one TV and a lot of fights broke out yeah. because some people wanted to watch Channel 4, some people wanted to watch Channel 9, uh-huh. right? By you having a TV in yourself, you don't have to go through that, Right. But for me, I was saying, okay, that's cool. But for some reason, I had a different way of thinking. Right. I said to myself, I can't be here in Clinton all this time, spending my time watching TV. I I, I don't want to be stuck to a TV. Right. I need to fight my case. Yeah. And anybody that's been to Clinton, 
Yeah, throughout the state, you had to fill out a request to go to the law library, but it wasn't that easy getting over there. And it's not like the law library had the best material for you to really research your, your, your case and to defend yourself. Right. So the closer you were to the city, the better access you had to better material. Mm. And for me, I said, you know, I need to get myself transferred out of here. And, and, and no matter how... People saying, oh, you crazy to leave Clinton. Oh, you know, you got a TV and all that. For me, at the end of the day, like, Fuck that TV. it would have been easier for me. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I was sentenced to 25 to life. So for me, it would have been easy if I had committed the crime because I would have swallowed it. Yeah. I said, I, I got to do this. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I got to do my time because I did it. I committed the crime. But the fact that I, I, I was innocent... I said, no, I, I got to fight my case. So yeah. I can't be here watching TV. That's the way I looked at it. Of course. I mean, that was okay. Yeah. So did you start fighting your case? I mean, I was fighting my case after, like, uh, I was fighting my case from day one. But when I seriously, like, really took the initiative to start fighting my case, I think I started fighting it back in 1993. Because it took me, like, about a good three years um, to take all the bitterness and hatred that I was feeling yeah. and, and just put it behind me because I didn't understand why I was there to begin with. You know, 18 years old, I'm angry, I'm bitter, yeah, I'm cursing everybody out. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, go through every possible scenario and ask myself, why am I here? And I couldn't understand it. I know that feeling, man. I went to jail for something I didn't do either. You know, so, so I was like, "What the fuck?" So I, was, hell, yeah. so I was going crazy in jail, and I was very, very angry. I had me going nuts. I was taking it out on everybody. And you know what? Not for nothing, I learned a valuable lesson because when they told me back then, they said, you, you know, you got to fight in order to stay alive in here. Um, while I was in the process of doing that, I saw a lot of people that were doing that, but a lot of people, they were making a lot of enemies. And they didn't realize that those enemies, that list of enemies was adding up. And I saw numerous times how people would, you know how it is in prison, they sneak up behind you, they cut you in your face without even looking of at course. you, or they stab you. Yeah, and they run off and shit, yeah. And I saw people die, mm -hmm. you know, or, or they just were, you know, hospitalized in terrible ways. And I said, this is not the way to survive in prison. This whole mentality about, you know, you got to build up a rep by fighting, it works to a certain degree, but it doesn't completely work. Mm -hmm. So I said, I got to find a different way to survive in prison. And, and I said, I just got to focus on my case. Let me just start by that. Let me clear my head and let me take this anger, put this behind me. Uh -huh. and, and that's what I did. So, okay. you know, I, I programmed. I took every possible program that I could ever think of. Okay. Uh, whatever the DOC provided to the inmate population, I took those programs. I went to college. I got my bachelor's degree. I got my master's degree. Um, a theater program came in there. I went into theater. He handled his business, man. Johnny, let's get round applause. That's my nigga Johnny, man. He was handling his business in jail. That's I, right. Go ahead, John. You know, I, I, I did it all, but that helped me because it actually gave me more tools that I ever knew to research and dig even deeper into my case. Mm -hmm. You know, so I went into the law library. I started working in the law library. But still, no matter what I did, it didn't help because I didn't have the evidence hmm. to prove my innocence. I wrote everybody. I wrote the Innocence Project back then, and they denied me because they said um, my case was a false confessing case, and the only cases they took were DNA. Okay. I wrote to the Exonerative Initiative. I wrote to the Michigan University um, uh uh, a school of, of law clinic. I wrote to everybody. I wrote to um, law firms. I wrote to pastors, ministers, priests. I wrote to student organizations, you name it. And nobody wanted to help me. Everybody said no. Why? Again, I didn't have the evidence and I did not have the financial resources to hire an attorney or an, attor or an investigator. Right. The attorney that I had, my parents, the little money that they had saved up, uh -huh. they had hired a private attorney when I was going through trial. And that private attorney just took my parents' money. And my parents was wiped out clean. They had nothing after that. So he just didn't, he didn't do shit. He just... He, I found out later, after I was proven innocent, 
through the private investigator that handled my case, that actually, you know, broke my case open, cracked my case open. I found out that it was so bad what I was going through that the attorney that my parents had hired, listen to this, he was really, really good friends with the judge and the DA in my case. So when he walked inside the courtroom and they saw him, it was like, you know, between themselves. Oh, shit, they give, you know how people give gang signs? They yeah. were giving their court signs and said, oh, we're happy to see you. And I didn't notice. Mm. So, but I always questioned why was like certain things taking place throughout my trial where he didn't defend me the way he should have had defend me. So, um, again, I, I stood... 25 years in prison, no matter how much I learned, no matter how I, I equipped myself, and no matter how I was trying to prove my innocence, I, I, I didn't get to do it on my own. Right. It wasn't until um, I was in Fishkill that, as a matter of fact, bef no, before I got to Fishkill, when I was in Sing Sing, well, I was taking my master's degree, um, the ex-commissioner of the New York State Parole Bob Dennison was a guest in the program, and the people, my my um my um 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 my uh, my 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 classmates, they started speaking about me and my innocence. And now, you know, you are you a director, you a commissioner. What do commissioners do? They evaluate you to see if they want to release you on parole, right? Right. But he knew my case. So I was like, okay. Um, I didn't ask him for anything, but he knew my case. When I was at graduation, he came up to my parents and he said, I want to help your son out. So uh, by that time, I already had an investigator, this um, journalist. Okay. His name is Bill Hughes. He was an expert in um, cracking down on corrupted judges, DAs, cops, and anything. And he used to write for the journalist. Journal News newspaper, and he was already looking into my case. But when the ex-commissioner uh, wanted to get involved, the both of them got involved, and they started digging deep into my case. Mm. And that's how, with, for the first time throughout my bid, that I actually had somebody really, truly helping me out. So and then you got what? You, so and then you did, how much time you did? I, I did all my 25 years. And no appeal? All my appeals were denied. And you came home on parole? No. So I went to the parole board four times. Um, the first time I found out, because I went in, you know how they, when you go to the parole board, they tell you, if you go in there claiming innocence, they're going to deny they're you parole. Deny you. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. not going to release you. Yeah, I know that. You know? Mm -hmm. But I went in there claiming my innocence. The only difference was that I was actually explaining to them the facts of my case and how I was innocent and how... You know, they went about trying to find me guilty. Right. So the parole commissioners in my hearing was like, I can't believe this happened to you. And I found out later they, they released me. They gave me a date to go home. And, and the, the thing is, I wasn't an American citizen. Keep in mind, I said, I'm Colombian. So I came here as an immigrant, okay. right? By law, any immigrant that is convicted of a crime automatically gets a deportation order. So throughout my time, when I was upstate, I had immigration call me out and give me a deportation order. And I was saying to myself, well, I'm going to get deported back to Colombia. And keep in mind, I haven't been to Colombia since I was like two, three, four years old. Yeah. You know, so, so like, what the fuck? Yeah, I'm going to go to a place where I never <laughs> lived, you know? Yeah. But um, when the parole board released me, I was happy. I was actually happy. Although I didn't know they made that decision. Three hours later, I got called back, and they told me um, um, we just received a letter from the DA's office, right? Um, we can't reveal all the information on anything like that, but we're, we're going to rescind our decision, right? And we're just going to allow you to go to court because at that time, I had my innocence hearing taking place. Okay. So every time I was going back and forth to court, um, they were scheduling me to go to the parole board. So after my first parole hearing, which, like I said, the superintendent of the facility yeah. and one of the female secretaries told me that they had gave me the release date right. and that they rescinded it. They took it back. But all my parole hearings, they postponed it because they said they were they just wanted to let the courts handle me.
That's what they said. So um, I went through my whole entire innocence hearing, and it wasn't until um, throughout the hearing that somebody was reading a newspaper at work. Right? They presented evidence. I had witnesses. They presented other technical evidence in my case, but there was one main person that was at work, a woman, she was a nurse or I don't know what her job title was. And she came to court to testify. She said she opened up her newspaper in her lunch break and she saw the article about my case. Right. And before she even read the case and all, she just saw the name of the case and she saw my picture and she recognized me. There was a girl from around my neighborhood that knew me. We weren't friends like that. We knew each other. But what I didn't know is that when this crime took place, she was exactly on the same platform where everybody committed the crime. And she was like at the back of the subway where it took place. So she had, she, she was like blocked off. She couldn't get out. Because everything was happening. And everything was happening. Right. But the people that were from the neighborhood, she knew those people and, and some of the people that she didn't know, but she, she didn't see me there. So she, her testimony was so credible and so powerful, right, that she pointed intricate details that the DA and the judge said, you know, the only, the only way to know this is for you to be there. You know? You know what I'm saying? And well, her testimony actually substantiated and corroborated okay. everything that everybody else said in my case. And, and it was... Those pieces of evidence that the judge came to the decision and said, you know what, um, you innocent, I'm going to let you go. And that's what happened. They overturned my case. That's what's up, man. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank you, brother. I mean, shit. Let's give him a round of applause, man. My boy Johnny, man. But I did the 25 years, man. I did. So, so you home now? How long you been home? I'm, uh, October, I'll be, uh, I'll be home now for four years. And what you been doing since you been home? A little bit of everything, man. I've been... Um, Doing a lot of uh, political activism, trying to help other people that are innocent getting out of prison. Like reform? Um, a lot of, yeah, criminal justice reform, but also, like I said, um, helping out certain wrongful conviction cases. There's this case out in California, a guy named David Diaz. Um, he's He got uh, allegedly blamed for shooting somebody in the leg. Listen to this. He, got sh he was in the movie theater watching a movie with his girlfriend and his sister. And 25 minutes away, two gang members had beef with each other, and one guy did a drive-by and shot the other gang member in the leg. Um, he got picked out of a lineup for a juvenile case because the, the, the victim's sister was forced to pick him up because her younger brother was at the station. And they told her, well, you ain't leaving here to get your brother unless you pick somebody out, and that's exactly what she did. She picked somebody else, so she picked David Diaz. Again, he didn't die. But when they left out of there and they did, went to arraignments, they went to preliminary, they went to trial, uh -huh. both of them said David Diaz was not the person that shot me in the leg. Yet they still found him guilty. They sentenced him to 10 years for an assault. And because California has a law that says that any crime committed with a weapon, the judge can enhance the sentence or add a sentence. So he gave him extra 27 and a half years to life in prison. So altogether, he gave him 37 and a half years to life in prison. And he's been in prison now 21 years for allegedly shooting somebody in the leg for a crime that he did not commit, where the victim said he wasn't the shooter. Damn. So I personally got involved in that case. And oh, it's yeah. cases like that that I'm trying to help other innocent people get out of prison. So those are one of the things that I do. I do public speaking engagements with the criminal justice reform, like you said. Okay. Since I've been home, um, I've been rubbing shoulders with a lot of a lot of celebrities, a lot of important people. Um, I was working on a criminal justice reform briefly project with Usher. Um, uh, I met Meryl Streep, uh, Malik Yoba from New York Undercover. Um, really, really good friend of mine. So, um, you know, we text each other, we call each other and everything. Cool. I did a commercial with him. Um, I was taking acting lessons. And I was in a movie called Mob Town where I played a Miami mob boss. It's coming out this December. Okay. Johnny doing big things, man. I like and, it. And, I like and, it. And one of them, uh, I like it. I, I love I, it. I got to meet um, a, a, a very, very powerful person in the music industry. 
right? He was the one that found ZZ Top. He found uh, Huey and the Blowfish, Matchbox 20, Kid Rock. He signed Katy Perry. You know, he was the president of Virgin Records, Arista Records, and now he's the president of Lava Records. So me and him are really, really, really good friends, and I've gotten to meet a lot of people through him. And um, his story kind of in, like, some ways... Um, 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 kind of like inspired me to want to like get back into the music industry because you know when I was growing up as a teenager, this might sound stupid or corny or funny or whatever, but at that time I didn't know who J Lo was. But after I found out who J Lo was, I used to tell people, I'm like the I was supposed to be the male version of J Lo. I was not that good looking like J Lo, yeah, no, yeah, not yeah. a good looking guy and like that. But I was the, ma- the male version of the hunger. Like, I wanted yeah. to. Be somebody like Jayla, cause she made it as a dancer, and then right. her career took off after that, right? So being home and and knowing people like this, I was trying to help out certain certain other artists. I was trying to get them signed and everything, and um, you know the in, the music industry has changed a lot. Yeah, it changed a lot. It changed a lot, and I learned a lot from it. And so I I I I've met a lot of AR people, and um, I'm trying to help people out here and there, but it's not easy. It's not easy, you know, and um, it, making it just being home four years, keep in mind, I, again, I stand out being home because most people that come home from prison, you got to go to a reentry program, right? You have where a transitional phase reentering into society. They don't have none of that for exonerees. They don't have that for people that were innocent. So what do you do with people like me? You know, and then on top of that, um, there's a lot of exploitation on us. To the hottest topic right now is prisons. So everybody wants to make money off of people that have been on prisons, mm-hmm. right? But they themselves were never in prison. Yeah. So you know that's another topic within itself. Listen, man, Johnny, it was a pleasure having you, man. I think the conversation was great. Everything you brought to the table was great, and I love what you, I love what you're doing. So this platform right here is for ex-convicts, you know, for ex-people that been in prison, just like yourself, you know what I'm saying? So you more than welcome to ever come back here whenever you you have something else going on, I'll make it happen. We'll, you, this would be your house, man. You know what I'm saying? We love to have guys like you, man, come to it. Because uh, it, it's just it's, it's, it's good to, to, to know that, you know, you came a long way, bro, and you're here, man, and I, and I respect that, man. You, you're here, you're making it happen, and you're free. You know what I'm saying? And you've been through hell. You know what I'm saying? So we love, we, you know, we, we we embrace that. You know what I'm saying? This is like, this is their home. I right? just know that, you know, that you go always, uh, this platform is always a pleasure to have you, man. Listen, Pete, let me just say this, man. Um, Thank you for having me on your show. Um, I know I uh, I was a little long-winded in explaining a lot of details of, of what I went through, right? But let me just say, for you having this platform mm-hmm. to allow people that been through the prison system, right, to allow them to share their stories and to other people hear their voice, man, is a big thing. It's a good thing. So again, big ups to you. Big ups to everybody in your crew that's supporting you behind the scenes, right? And for making this possible. And I wish you nothing but success, Pete, man. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you once again for having me here, brother. That's what it is, man. It's all love, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Box and Dice. And Pistol Pete back in the dog in the yard. Wow, Pete, the interview was serious, man. You know, the brother got emotional. The brother, you know, he, he kind of went back, you know? Mm-hmm. He kind of went back in the interview, man, you know, into a story where, where he felt he felt it, man. He was, he, was like, he was like, wow, man, you know what I'm saying? This is what I went through. You know, he visualized himself going back through it. But this brother, man, was is a personal friend of mine. You know, I was locked up with him. I seen them go through his struggles. I seen his family go through his struggles. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, finally, you know, just to prevail, they, they showed that, that he wasn't involved. That, and, and, and it was 25 years later, but he made it home. And the brother now, you know, is, is living his life. You know, he got two kids, you know, and hey, he's doing what he got to do. I'm going to tell you something, man. That brother's a very good brother, man. Humble brother. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, you know, my heart, you know what I mean, goes out to him, you know, for just standing up and being strong throughout that big journey that he's been through, you know? Yes, man, he was blessed that he came home and his parents were still alive. You yeah, know what I'm saying? yeah. And, like now, you know, he got two kids, you know what I'm saying? God bless, you know, man. He's living his life, man. He's living his life, man. Listen, man, man, just know, Johnny, 
This platform is here for you, man. We want to thank you for coming through. You know what I'm saying? And that's how we going to give it up, man. It's Pistol Pete, dog in the yard, man. Appreciate all the love out there. You know what I'm saying? Boxing Dyson, that's how we doing it, man. Get out of us.